Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. So today we are starting our three-part journey with cyanide. Mm -hmm. Three parts plus a microdose. Four-part journey (laughs) with cyanide. Yeah. For our valued patrons. Mm -hmm. Join us on Patreon for all the fun of microdoses. Yeah. So Kayla, where are you taking us first with (laughs) cyanide? Man, today's episode is a bummer. So I am taking us to... To the Holocaust. We're going to talk Nazi Germany and concentration camps. So big, big trigger warning up top for anti-Semitism and discussion of genocide and all of that. If if that's not something that you can handle. And all of the sadness that goes with that. Yeah. 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 We we won't hold it against you for tuning out of this episode. Not at all. But so, yeah, as with any story involving World War II and the Holocaust – It's tragic and it's horrifying, but it's also long and complex. And it would be an oversimplification to attempt to pin the Holocaust on any single person. I mean, anybody who's really thought about it beyond like what you're kind of told as a kid to understand it understands like it wasn't just Hitler. Like it was a lot of people. No, there were a lot of people who were yes men for Hitler. It was not just Hitler. Exactly. Yeah. He had a lot of accomplices in the matter. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we need to understand that, like, his accomplices were also, like, people, citizens, employees who were, who were radicalized enough that, you know, they killed or helped to kill fellow Germans, you know, and six million Jewish people and millions of other people who were considered, you know, lesser than. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to... I don't want to oversimplify the story at all. But, of course, we're going to be focusing on a pretty niche part of it. We're not going to go into too many gory details with it, but we're going to be very focused. So, yeah. And, of course, it wasn't it wasn't every German. It was a lot of Germans. It was a lot of people outside of Germany. But there were a lot of people who bought into the propaganda of the Nazi party. And I I guess I also want to preface it by saying that I myself am not Jewish. I'm not a scholar of Judaism or Jewish history. But it's not hard for me to look at it and be like, oh, that's anti-Semitism. And it's also kind of lazy because every conspiracy theory that I know about when somebody's explained it to me down to the skeleton Mm -hmm. of it is anti-Semitism. So anytime that somebody like wants to throw Jewish people under the bus, I'm like, ah, that's fucking creative. That's real fucking cool of you. Because, like, they've been doing that to Jewish people literally since, like, the Black Death in the 14th century. Like, I I knew about that. But then for this episode, I was like, okay, I want to dig because I want to know, not having that cultural background, that oral history or anything. Like, how long have people had anti-Semitism at the root of their, like, fears and their scapegoating, you know? Yeah, how far back does it go? Because I am... I mean, I'm familiar with the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. but beyond that, how far are we going? 
So the earliest pogrom, which I thought a pogrom was a place, but it's actually an organized riot almost against a certain group of people. The earliest pogrom against Jewish people was in Roman Alexandria, Egypt in the year 38 CE. So way the fuck back. Way the fuck back. And like that's you know, how how it escalated. It escalated to a program in 38, which means that, like, there was already... There was already some... prevalent. Exactly, exactly. This is just more organized. Right. Anti-Semitism in text, like written text, can be traced back to the early 3rd century BCE in Egypt. So at least that far back, people were writing it down and then dispelling it amongst other people who could read and write. So... It's It's been going on a long time. But in the year 38, political tensions increased between the ethnic Jews and the Greeks, and the property of the Jews was destroyed, and they were killed, their property was looted, they were forced from their homes into a ghetto, which is kind of what I thought pogroms were, were ghettos, but it's not. And then the ghetto was blockaded and set on fire, and anybody who tried to escape was killed. Jeebus. Yeah. 38 CE. So, as I said, I don't have any background. This is just what I looked up for this episode, what I learned to educate myself. But, you know, I found it worth mentioning that it's just, to me, it's lazy. Like, a honestly. A tale as old as time. Yeah, it's a tale as old as time. It's lazy. Like, whenever anybody wants to blame Jewish people, it's just like, why, why are you being so uncreative, I suppose? But if you do want to know more about somebody who's more well-informed and not from somebody who is non-Jewish, which is not where you should be getting the majority of your information from, there is a social media person called Jewitches, and they're on Instagram, they're on TikTok, they have their own podcast, and I think they're a more appropriate person to, you know, use as a source, learn of more sources from. I recommend them. They're pretty cool. Have to check them out. Yeah. So where I really want to actually delve into this story is just before World War One. The population of the world had increased so dramatically around that time that agriculture was struggling to keep up with it. Farmers already knew that they could plant certain crops which would help return nitrogen to the soil, and they knew that manure and animal bones could be spread to add more nitrogen. And I don't know if they knew it was nitrogen. I mean, around World War I, they probably realized that it was nitrogen. They knew that it helped. They knew that it helped. They knew that it fertilized. So this was the only way that they were able to achieve nitrogen fixation because it takes nitrogen from the air and fixes it to the soil. So the manure fixes to the soil, animal bones, you know, the animals have fixed it within their system and put it into their bones and then that goes into the soil. But we had no way to just fix it. Like we had to get it from these animal sources. And it's it's absolutely essential to crops. Without it, crops failed, they weren't successful enough to support the booming populations of major cities, and especially in England. And so, you know, England was able to afford all of the good crops and everybody else was really suffering as a result. So there was really mm. this like food scarcity problem because of the haves and the have nots. And so around World War One, there were a lot of talks, especially in the chemistry community, about we absolutely have to find a way to fix nitrogen into the soil. Otherwise, like we're kind of doomed, you know? So, so, what, so what do we do or who helped? Well, 
The person who came to the world's rescue on this was a Jewish chemist named Fritz Haber, who in 1919 was actually awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the Haber-Bosch process, which was developed in 1911 by Haber and his partner, Carl Bosch. And this process created ammonia by fixing airborne nitrogen to hydrogen using an iron catalyst. It was, it was a huge deal. They were able to do it commercially after a couple of years. And he essentially created a solution to one of the problems which led to world hunger. Like, big deal. There's a reason they gave him the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. Immediately, though, the work which was so essential for the survival of humanity began to take on a dark shade. Because nitrogen is also a key element in explosives, which is kind of ironic because have you heard of the story of like how the Nobel Prize Foundation got started? I have not. So Nobel actually created TNT and he created it because of mining oh. and so it made mining far more efficient. And then he read an early or a misprinted version of his obituary. Somebody thought he died. So they printed his obituary and he saw it. And they were basically saying that he was like like a war profiteer or something like that because explosives have been used to kill people. And he was like, oh, fuck, this can't be my legacy. So he created the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Nobel Prize. Like, yeah. Okay, let me let me shift the focus of my <laughs> of my lifetime to something else. Right. But I think there's no Nobel Prize for mathematics because I oh. think his wife cheated on him with a mathematician. Oh, <laughs> the shade. The shade. Yeah. So they have their own version of the Nobel Prize because they got left out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but back to Fritz Haber. I could do, we could do an entire episode on this guy alone. And we probably should do it in the future because okay. his work during World War One that I can't focus on for this episode, it's just, it's too much. This This work, though... It earned him the moniker, the father of chemical warfare. Ooh. And he is pretty much the reason why World War I is referred to as the chemist's war. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So he's, he's a pretty complicated guy, pretty controversial, because he helped find a solution for one of the branches of, you know, world hunger. But he was also the father of chemical warfare. Like, it was not good. So he's he's helping people live and killing at the same time. Yeah, and killing. He, he Killing them with mustard, phosgene, and chlorine gas. Like, it was mm. not good stuff. Yeah. Not, not a good time. Yeah. And around this same time, cyanide was also a fairly new poison being used. Liquid hydrocyanic acid, which is also called prussic acid because it could be derived from Prussian blue dye, it was discovered near the end of the 18th century. And the reason that all of this was happening at the same time is because we were doing a lot of research into dyes. And so there was just mm. a lot of medicines and poisons that we found as a result of the dye industry. Um, Excellent. Yeah. And after we found it, we pretty soon realized that it's a pretty potent poison. And so how does it act as a poison? When it's heated to 79 degrees Fahrenheit, hydrocyanic acid vaporizes and it becomes a lethal gas that starves the cells of oxygen and leads to a quick, albeit painful, suffocating death. So you, you do actually turn blue with cyanide a little bit because you're, you're suffocating on a cellular mm. level, though. And this happens to Not both... just, just because you're, de you're deprived of air, your whole body Your whole body is deprived of, deprived of air. Gotcha. Yeah. And this happens to mammals and insects. So it was first exploited 
by the California orange growers in the 1880s to fumigate their orchards, but then the practice was extended to mills and ships all over the United States, and then Spain, Italy, South Africa for pesticide control. Everybody's loving the hydrocyanic acid. Yeah, works like a motherfucking charm. Yeah, let's get it everywhere, kill all the bugs. And <laughs> other pests, too, like we're using it on, like, rats and things mm-hmm. like that as well. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So in the 1910s, a company called Degusa began to direct much of their attention towards cyanide because the board of the company had noted that several German publications were already discussing the uses of cyanide for saving wartime food storages and fumigating their uniforms. So the uniforms had lice in them, and they were using the, uh, the cyanide to fumigate it, which was a huge deal. Like, they were talking about it so much, not because, only because it was effective and you could just spray it, whatever, and use however much of it you wanted, which is, you know, if you think about the trucks that sprayed the pesticides, like, that's probably what it was. Just like, right. With abandon, total abandon, spray cyanide everywhere. But the, the lice on the uniforms was particularly important because trench fever was actually directly caused by lice and caused oh. many, many deaths on the fields and the trenches of World War One. So, so not even just like wartime deaths, like you're getting shot or gren- grenade, things like that, but yeah. bugs are getting you. Bugs are getting you, yeah. And so the ability to have cyanide effectively fumigate these uniforms without any co- without causing damage to the textile or to the growing foods that it was being used to fumigate was like amazing. You know, it was it was great. So did they know that it was poisonous to humans at this time, though? Yeah, they probably knew. I mean, again, they were just using it kind of with abandon. They knew it was uh, They're like this works for the bug problem. Let's focus on that. Yeah. Well, there was that. They knew you could use it on mammals. And so it's kind of like, you know, that logical extension. Like, well, if it works on mammals, it probably works on humans. And in fact, it does work on humans. And there was interest in using gaseous hydrogen cyanide as a chemical weapon in war because this was the chemist's war. But like many gases that have been examined historically for this same purpose, or even, you know, the purpose of terrorism, which we are getting into a bit this season, Hydrogen cyanide was not effective in open air because it dispersed too quickly. So it was dismissed as a possibility by Fritz Haber himself. He was like, this isn't as good as mustard gas, phosgene, chlorine. We already have these three. We don't need cyanide, and it's not very good anyhow. It's kind of like in the throwback to the botulism episode when they were talking about making the botulism grenades or whatever. Exactly. It doesn't hold in the air long enough. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Haber retained, in 1917, he retained hydrogen cyanide for use in the War Ministry's Technical Committee for Pest Control. He was like, it's exclusively for pests. It's not really good for anything else, but it's great for pests. We should definitely keep it on hand. And so the cyanide was kept at military installations, border crossings, granaries. Like, it was pretty much everywhere. And because we knew it was poisonous to humans, it was dispersed by workers who wore protective suits and oxygen masks. And the way that they would disperse it was that they would mix the sodium cyanide with sulfuric acid diluted in a bit of water, and this would cause a reaction that would heat the cyanide and allow it to vaporize into gas. And so that's how they used it. They mixed it. So you didn't have to actually store the hydrogen hydrogen gas like in an aerosol or like a pest. Okay. Spray or it whatever. was de- dependent on the sulfuric acid and mm-hmm. the water. Yeah. 
Yep. And so is the sulfuric acid, it doesn't make a gas or is it deadly on its own? So patrons who listened to our summer movie microdoses, they can compare that to hydrochloric acid where you don't want to be breathing in sulfuric acid fumes. Like that's not going to be good for you. But on its own in this use, I wouldn't say it's particularly deadly. Okay. You don't want to get it on your skin. You don't want to inhale it. But sure. Yeah. Yeah. But Haber was so impressed and so satisfied with the e efficacy of this gas that he wanted it to be publicly available so that anybody could use it for pest control. And so a public corporation called Degesh was formed in 1919 and was headed by Fritz Haber. And it was then taken over in 1920 by a group of chemical firms and then acquired by Degusa, that company we were talking about before who had an interest in cyanide. They took it over in 1922. Okay. But while I'm bringing up these other companies, let's talk about them because they are major players. Like I said up top, there are a lot of people who are involved in this story. And of course, when companies are being discussed as having Nazi ties, IG Farben is like the major one that's brought up. I know Swindle did an did an episode on IG Farben. If, if you're talking about like people who still have ties to Nazis and like maybe their company should have been dismantled, like Bayer is brought up, Bayer Aspirin, because it was mm. part of IG Farben. So okay. that's, the, that's the big one. And Bayer, it started out on its own. It was a chemical manufacturer that began in 1863 as a dye maker. The big and, dye boom you were talking about. Yeah, exactly. And through hard work and luck, they ended up becoming a pharmaceutical manufacturer in 1888. Mm. And so they chased the Reichsmarks and in 1897 began producing a mild but effective form of aspirin for which Bayer would be known. And still is known today. And still is known today. Yeah. In 1916, the company which was manufacturing ammonia with the Haber-Brosch process was called BASF. And they, alongside Bayer, Agfa, Hoechst, Kale, Casella, Greisheim Electron, and Weiler Termer, so a bunch of chemical companies, they become collaborators as a part of the Interessing Gemeinschaft der Deutschen Teefaberen Industry, which means the community of interests of the German dye industry. So all of these people, like I said, started out with German dyes and then kind of expanded from there. And that's a really long name, and so they just shortened it to the IG. So all of those mm. became the IG. They mandated in the IG that as a community, they would work together on things like pricing, supply, research, patents, legal affairs, insurance, but they weren't a monopoly because they maintained separate entities and some of their profits would still only be shared with their old partners pre-collaboration. But the reason that they did this was very much framed, at least, as being in the interest of people, the interest of humanity, the world, because their chemists could still work and talk together and that would just help everybody, which, mm. yes, in an ideal it's world. On paper, yeah, on paper, it sounds like a good idea. Yeah. So when the first attempts were made to create a gaseous cyanide product that could be mass produced, transported, and used by the common person, which was what Fritz Haber wanted, there were complications. Of course there were. <laughs> in a liquid state, which was the preferential way to store it, hydrogen cyanide decomposes via polymerization and can explode. 
Danger. Yeah. Danger so, canisters. <laughs> the scientists at Gash, Degesh decided that storing it as a gas would be the easier option. But you can't just store straight hydrogen cyanide because if the containers were compromised, you would kill everybody. Right? So they yeah. were like, oh, that's not great. So what they Still did... Still got a danger can situation. <laughs> <laughs> danger can. So what they did was they used a non-volatile non cyanide derivative that could be sprayed and then would transform to hydrogen cyanide in the presence of moisture and warmth. So, so essentially just... In the air, it becomes hydrogen cyanide. Okay. Which, I mean, that's still not great because it's still, like, as it's escaping the canister, it becomes danger. Like, it's still kind of a danger canister. But to kind of overcome that, they added an eye irritant to it. And so that would warn people of the danger of the gas and keep them away mm. in the event of a leak. Okay. Or, you know, if it was used regularly and so that you know that somebody has sprayed this and that you need to stay away. Because, like I said, we're, we're just using it with abandon. And that's what consumers do, right? They're like, I can just spray a whole can of spray, spray in my house and it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's <laughs> fine. And so hopefully the eye irritant is enough. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. It, and it, it, it did work fairly well because this formulation with the cyanide derivative and the eye irritant was patented in 1920 as Zyklon, which was a portmanteau of the German words for cyanide and chlorine, which translates also to cyclone. Nice. It was, it was good, but it wasn't as good or safe as they had hoped. So not surprised. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> We've so done too many episodes about <laughs> about pesticides for me to believe that they're safe ever <laughs> in their original creation. I know too much now to think that this could have gone well in the beginning. <laughs> well, and do I ever tell you stories where I'm like, and then it worked out fine. Yay! And everything was fine. Ba -da -ba -ba -da -ba. End of episode. <laughs> no, no. So the problem was that the eye irritant that was part of the formulation dissipated more quickly than the cyanide itself. <laughs> so which... the poison was hanging around longer in the air than the eye irritant. Right, right, than the warning was. And so it led to deaths. And also, at the same time, 1920, the components used in poison gases, they were also the same kind of poisons that were used for the German army. They became banned by the Allies because they said, no, no, Germany, you don't get to use those anymore. And so, because loopholes are stupid, prussic acid wasn't banned. You could still use prussic acid. Okay. <laughs> and so they were like, okay, well, we have this loophole. We'll use prussic acid. And it still wasn't like a great option for them, even though they found this loophole, because like making hydrogen cyanide available to everybody commercially had never been economical for them like it was one of those like it's a it's a great idea for humanity because it, it gets pests out of your food and it saves you from lice and all of that but it just isn't making the company any money and now it was worse and they had to deal with figuring out what to do with the tubs that the prussic acid was transported in because it, so they were I these huge tubs what what was the reasoning for the cyanide gas to be banned, but not the prussic acid? I'm really not sure why it was. It could be that it the the 
gas they were using, it, it must have been used in another gas or like as a precursor Okay. to something. But prussic, It was useful for something else. but prussic acid wasn't. And so they were like, well, you're not using it in warfare. You're not trying to kill anybody Mm. with it. So Gotcha. you can keep that. And so they're like, Okay. well, we can keep it, but it sucks. And then they decided to deal with it. <laughs> gotcha. So in 1922, the head of Degesh came up with the idea of soaking absorbent fossilized algae in the acid, in the prussic acid, and then sealing it in tightly packed cans, which was easy and safe to transport, which had been the issue all along, but was an even greater issue with the prussic acid. And the cans, unlike the regular prussic acid cans, had no danger in storing them until they could be picked up by the company or whoever for reuse because Germany's always been super cool about recycling. Between 1923 and 1924, the safety of this method was further improved upon by adding another warning agent and a stabilizing agent to the acid. So all good stuff here. They were finally able to patent and sell Zyklon again without the use of any banned substances that the Allies didn't want them using. And... This time, only government-certified practitioners were allowed to handle it. So it was not something that was, like, commercially available, Commercially but available, you could right. get somebody to come out and, like, do it for you, right? Okay, okay. And this, this is the birth of Zyklon B. Mm. Mm -hmm. But we're still pre-World War II, and that context is important. So we need to remember that... Germany lost in World War I, and the Allies began to try to dismantle its power as much as possible. That's why they were like, you don't get to use these chemicals anymore. Um, you know, we're not going to be letting you create, even create these chemicals anymore. So you're going to take a hit to your chemical industry. And so the companies that were in the IG were hit really hard because nitrogen could be implemented for the production of munitions, but also for fertilizer. You know, it's that thing that Mm-hmm. Fritz Haber Mm immediately saw. And Mm -hmm. the aspirin that Bayer produced was useful for people all around the world, but they were being they were being eyed by the rest of the world, and they were they were taking economic losses. Also, the land and the companies were impounded by the Allied powers, and Germany lost thirteen percent of its territory following the war. Oh, I didn't Mm -hmm. know that. Yeah, yeah, the chemists. rallied to try to convince the allied the allies at versailles so the treaty of versailles that they only had peace in mind they weren't trying to manufacture stuff for warfare the war was over i mean the idea of like better living through chemistry hadn't quite become commercialized yet but this is what they were trying to say is like we just we just want to help people you know Mm. We're um we're the helpful guys. We're we're trying to help. Like, yeah, ch chemicals can be used to in injure people, but like world hunger and like elimination of pain, that's important. But ultimately at Versailles, the Germans lost this argument too. And the companies of the IG had to surrender 50% of their stocks to the Allies. Oh, shit. That's a huge <laughs> hit. it's a huge hit. And then none of the confiscated assets or patents that were taken during the war were turned over. So now everybody else had like access to these things that they wouldn't normally have had access to. Yeah. Uh, Like the Zyklon B? The Zyklon B, the aspirin, the Haber-Bosch Oh, all process, of it. all Yeah. of it, all of their patents All of were handed over and there was no compensation Okay. for the loss. Um, Bosch eventually on his own 
reached a deal with France that essentially saved the IG. He went and he was like, I'll give you this for that. And it wasn't like, it wasn't great, but it allowed the the chemical firms of Germany to continue. Mm. But, you know, even after that, the Germans were still at a complete disadvantage economically following this. And so the chemists weren't happy. Germans on the whole were not happy with how things were going for them. Because, I mean, this is how things were all over the country, in all areas, in all industries. Like, yeah, people were They're people were suffering because of their government, for sure. But, yeah. When you're a company, it's hard to say that you're not, like, complicit in that. But people were suffering. It was a hard time. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't just the companies. It was everybody. It was everybody. So... In 1925, as the German chemical industry was starting to rebuild and rebrand, the Interessing Gemeinschaft renamed itself IG Farben and came together as a single corporate entity, with some of the smaller companies being distinct subsidies of the company, but for the most part, it was just one. They just all got lumped into one. Mm -hmm. The ones who were already a part of the IG, so it's not like they were adopting other smaller companies. It's still not technically a monopoly. Not technically. Technically. Yeah. Technically. By 1929, it employed over 120,000 people at 106 plants and mines, and IG Farben produced 100% of Germany's dyes, 85% of its nitrogen, and 41% of its pharmaceuticals. They also were producing mineral acids, rayon, explosive, photography supplies, pesticides, plastics, and a bunch of other stuff. So... Yeah, not so, so technically not a monopoly. technically in monopoly, but <laughs> but, it's but not... as far as the dyes go, it was a dye monopoly. It was a yeah, it was a dye monopoly. Yeah, I mean, and might as well be the nitrogen monopoly. Yeah. like yeah. might as well be. Yeah, but technically, not technically. Yeah, not technically. Okay, so initially, when Hitler began to stir things up and the Nazi Party began to first seed itself in Germany, the Nazis targeted IG Farben because many of their board members were Jewish. And they actually, Mm. IG Farben fired a Nazi employee who used slurs to describe one of the board members in an outside-of-work speech in 1927. So they're pro-Jew in the company, and they're not tolerant of anti-Semitism, they're in the least, beginning. Yeah, they're at least not tolerant of anti-Semitism. I don't know if they're going out and saying, like, yeah, we're pro-Jewish, but they're at least not tolerating anti-Semitism okay. to the point where, like, an outside-of-work speech got somebody fired. Right. Eventually, Hitler met with one of the senior chemists at IG Farben, who was impressed that Hitler seemed comfortable with chemical processes and talking about chemistry and what they did. But I, in the book I was reading for this, I read that it was probably just an act because somebody close to Hitler, after everything, later stated that he, quote, lacked any real fundamental understanding of scientific research. <laughs> Which sounds familiar for, for some people who I've seen in power. But, yeah. you know, fake it till you make it, right? Yeah, but it only gets you so far, and people can usually see through the veil. Yeah, and I mean, the people close to him... If you give them enough time. Right, the people close to him, I think, could see through it soon enough, but the people at IG Farben didn't, you know, he seemed like he could talk the Mm -hmm. talk, and so they were impressed by him at that. And so after this meeting, you know, after they were like, 
we understand each other, whatever, I don't know. But the Nazis backed off from targeting IG Farben. And oh. it Okay. It wasn't long before Hitler reached out to industrialists in Germany looking for financial backing. And so he was having this speech in 1932, and four representatives from IG Farben attended. And the speech omitted any mention of Jewish people and mostly focused on private enterprise, the failure of democracy, and what the Nazis planned to do to save Germany with, you know, nationalism and all this shit if they won the election on May 5th. So that was their whole thing was like, we need financial backing so that we can win this election. We need to be able to get mm. the word out about the Nazi party. And they were very specific about what they said to these industrialists. And then Hitler and Goering told everyone present that they either needed to financially support the Nazi party or there would be a civil war. So they're trying to convince um, them and then they're like, by the way, if you don't back us... We are going to make it so that life is fucking intolerable for all of you. And your company is not going to survive. Yes, your company won't survive. So a Mm. month later, Carl Bosch made an enormous donation, donation, you know, quotes. It Mm. was a donation, was it blackmail? On behalf of IG Farben to the Nazi party. Converting from Reichsmarks to U.S. dollars and then accounting for inflation... In 2022 dollars, it was nearly $37 million that he gave to the Nazi party, which is like... That's a huge, yeah, huge amount. Even like for today's campaign donation standards, that's a Mm -hmm. huge fucking amount. I mean, yeah, and considering that like part of it was blackmail, like maybe, maybe they were very concerned, but it's like... I, I don't know. You're kind of, mm, are, is that maybe, maybe you wanted to do this. This kind of seems like it's something I'm, that you were like super into doing. And to, like, m- to me, the tune of $37 million sounds like you wanted some part of it. Yeah. Like, yeah, like you're fine with parting with this much. Yeah, because, I mean, I don't know how much money their company was making, but $37 million is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to imagine that it would be something it's not like you're writing a check to bonnie's bake sale for 20 bucks and accounting is not gonna notice it like that's enough to make all the shareholders buttholes pucker a little bit yeah i think i would think so especially the jewish shareholders like what kind of message is this sending Right, because at this point in time, there's still Jewish members on the board and a part of the company. Mm -hmm. Okay. Not a good look. Mm -mm. And so the Nazis, I mean, this was one of the donations they received, and so they were well-backed now. And riots broke out. The Nazis controlled the police, and so dissidents were beaten and imprisoned. The party was able to afford to spread their propaganda far and wide. And certainly as a direct result of their ability to get some financial power, they ended up with 288 delegates and a parliament of 647, and another 52 were won by a Nazi coalition partner, meaning that in the parliament they now held an overall majority. Mm, Yes. In March of 1933, the head of pharmaceuticals at IG Farben wrote a letter to all IG executives which stated that, quote, 
The national revolution in Germany has developed with unparalleled peace and order since, <laughs> since our immediate business interests have also been affected by these political developments. We feel it is important for this reason, but especially because of our duty as Germans to tell you explicitly for our part as well that the contents of all atrocity tales being spread abroad about mistreatment of political opponents and Jews are in no way keeping with the facts. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and IG Farben, I mean, this was one guy, but he is speaking for the company. He's putting the writing on the wall, at least. And the you know, IG Farben as a company was not alone in making this swing towards Nazi favoritism. One of the other chemical manufacturers outside the conglomerate, which, you know, kept IG Farben from being a monopoly, was Degusa, the one that we mentioned earlier. Yep, yep, yep. And they were essentially the Nazi-approved chemical opponent to IG Farben. Mm. They acquired Degesh, so Haber's company, in 1922, mm -hmm. the same year that Degesh was applying Zyklon B to fossilized algae. Degusa previously had no ties to Nazis prior to 1933, but when the Nazis were asserting their power, the board of directors had no problems bending to the will of the Nazis, especially when it granted them this state-approved power. Before the party even decided to take an interest in them, in 1933, Degusa asserted that, quote, the entire managing board of our, of our enterprise is purely of the Christian faith, that our firm has never employed Jews since its foundations in 1873, and there are also today among its approximately 1,150 workers and about 700 commercial and technical employees and graduates, no adherence to the Jewish faith. Which was weird, unlikely weird to have flags. even been true. Yeah, yeah, weird flex, right. but also probably a lie. Because... Yeah. This would have been, like, them admitting to breaking a law for employment equality that was established in mm. Germany in 1867. And 5% of the population was Jewish in Germany at that time. So there so, was like, a good chance. But they were just jumping on board saying, like, oh, no, see, we're Jew-free. Yeah. Yeah. Like, come, come, oh come God. support us. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah. See, come, yeah, come, let us... Let us continue with our Nazi pride. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So at IG Farben, Karl Bosch was unsettled, to say the least, about statements being made by his colleagues about his other colleagues. So, you know, the head of pharmaceuticals is speaking for the whole company, and Karl Bosch is like, ah, nope, can't say that I agree with that. Especially because he was close with Fritz Haber, who, you know, despite his German nationalism, his, he actually converted to Christianity, and he was still forced from his position at the University of Berlin and was expelled from Germany in 1933. And then oh. other scientists, like Max Planck, tried to reason directly with Hitler to explain that he was losing a valuable scientist who could help the country, mm -hmm. but Hitler belligerently argued that a Jew is a Jew. Oh my god. Haber would die in Switzerland the following year, and perhaps for the best, so that he could not see what would happen with one of his own insecticides. Because mm. shit's about to get real dark. We're about to really get into it. From 1939 to 1945 in Germany, 
Zyklon B was the primary vaporizing pesticide used in the fumigation of military quarters, supplies, uniforms, vehicles, and food storehouses and milling facilities. So basically the way that cyanide... Everything. Yeah, it was used in everything, but this was also how they always used it since like vaporizing cyanide had been used like Mm. this was this was what they used it for this was not unusual it was stored safely it was picked up safely it had a warning agent you know it was considered things were all above board totally above board in late 1936 ig farben also began producing chemical weapons the company had experience with chemical weapons in World War I, which were created by Fritz Haber, but that tarnished both his reputation and theirs. And then chemicals were outright banned for warfare, right? So, like, this should not have been happening. Like, there was no reason for this to be happening except the escalation of the Nazi party and, you know, mm. the approach of World War II. And they're and they're like, well, we want to get in on this game. If yes. Degesh Degusa yeah. is in on it, mm-hmm. why are we just sitting here? Why why can't we play too? Right. Yes. And you know they're basically the chemical monopoly, so they right. have the means to do it. And Ig Farben is the company that created the nerve agents Taboon and Sarin. So they're behind a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That same year. 1936, IG Farben held 42.5% of the shares of Degesh alongside Degusa. You have the Nazi-approved Degusa, and you have IG Farben, and they both hold almost 50% of Degesh. And the chemical industry, still not quite a monopoly. The dye industry, as we already established, was. But it could basically be described as a cartel at this point, because they were being heavily swayed by the Nazis. Yeah, they're doing anything that they want. Mm-hmm. While members at IG Farben and their contemporaries were trying to reason with the Nazis, you know, like, you know, you're losing Fritz Haber and he's valuable. And, of course, while they're also making chemical weapons and it's individuals in the company, but as on the whole, the company has this, mm-hmm. like, Nazi trajectory. Degusa was more than willing to go along with the Nazi directives. They didn't have, you know... There are no records, at least, that show anybody who's like, ah, tap the brakes a little. Yeah, no qualms. And since they had favor with the Nazis and since they never questioned them, they were able to expand. They were able to legally and illegally purge Jewish workers from their company, buy shares in chemical providers silently, acquire land and businesses formerly owned by Jewish people, right? (sighs) And Degusa was the first company you know, between Degusa and IG Farben to engage in this kind of behavior. But by 1938, IG Farben had followed in suit and had fired all of their Jewish board members and employees and also began predatory absorption of land and companies previously owned by Jews. Fuck. Their size and their enormous power in Germany also allowed them to take advantage of the German occupancy of other companies as the war progressed, and they also seized foreign land and companies. And IG Farben... They're all in. They are all in. They're all in. And IG Farben did 
well in the early years of the war because they provided chemicals to the German army, but they also controlled most of the chemicals that citizens needed. And so they were able to survive losing international markets once they started to spread and people were like, hey, no, no, we're not okay with this. They were able to survive because they controlled so much of the market. By 1936, they had also abandoned their practice of hiring Jewish workers, and, you know, they were on their way to firing everybody that they already had, and they were supporting the Nazis with supplies in such a fashion that they could not have even denied knowing they were supporting and extending the war effort. And they even built secret plants that exclusively manufactured products for the military. So they're, like, they're not only all in, but they are a gear in the war machine yes at this point absolutely and and it's not something that slowly happened they were like blatantly exploding expansion yeah, yeah. it sounds like and so did degusa make all of the chemicals themselves or no. like no so even though or was like, there external help yeah even though there's like all of these big player companies they still have to have their suppliers so Calaverque Colon was the company that Degusa relied on for sodium cyanide. That, that was okay. who produced it. And then Degusa cornered the sales on the global market. So they got mm. it from another company and then they sold it. Gotcha. Um, and even though they were selling it, Degesha's name was on all of the products passed to consumers. So it was it was basically all of them. Everybody okay. was involved. It was a big circle jerk. In Zyklon B, yeah. IG Farben made the stabilizing agent in Zyklon B. Degesh made the absorbent packing material. And then the um, warning agent, that irritant, was made by a different company. And then Degusa also owned a smaller company who found a cheaper way to make the precursor cyanide from the nitrogenous waste of beets, which actually okay. also relates back to Fritz Haber. Oh, yeah, um, with, with the plants. With yep. the plants, yeah. So it's a lot of people who are involved in this, but it's only a couple people who are making, like, the big money off of it. Mm -hmm. And then two vendors originally made it available for purchase, but then this company, Tesh and Stabenow, who were actually chemists who helped formulate Zyklon B, they were given exclusive distribution rights in 1925. And then Tesh would later join the Nazi party in 1933. So he was an easy vote. Yeah, he was an easy vote. The, and the like pro war movement. I don't know. It's like Haber and Bosch were not, you know, but everybody else is. Like Haber and Bosch were like, look at this thing that can get pests out of everything. And then all of these Nazis were like, Oh yes, let's take that. We'd it's like crazy. some, please. Yeah. yeah. But as I already said, hydrocyanic gas wasn't that economical. At no point was it ever really economical. It became more efficient and more safe and a little bit easier and more economical to transport and sell. But it still never became, like, amazing by any means. Even with the improved shipping and safety measures, it was still more dangerous to use than arsenic, sulfur, or steam-based pesticides. And then with the rise of World War II, sales didn't significantly improve like Degusa had anticipated, that, you know, because they were like, okay, it's wartime again, and so we're going to need it for fumigating military uniforms and food stores like we had in World War I. But there was actually a shortage of nearly all the necessary materials from these smaller companies 
that helped manufacture Zyklon B between 1938 and 1943. And the sale of sulfur-based ingredients doubled. So... It's just, it's interesting to see that and then know what comes next. Because it's kind of like you can look at that and be like, so you were intentionally doing this then. Like, right. there's no this way is... around. You you yeah. were intentionally doing this. You knew what you were doing. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Not fun times. No. Nope. None of these are fun times. <laughs> if it was more dangerous and supplies were limited, though, why continue to focus on it? Because for Degesh specifically, it was still fairly lucrative, and they kind of still depended on it to stay afloat as a company. Okay. Uh, they required so much of it be made for the delousing of barracks in the war effort that two other companies, DeSau and Colin, both had to work their companies for three shifts a day to keep up with the demand. Oh, jeez. They were going through gobs of this then. Yeah, yeah. And part of why Zyklon B was working out so well for Degesh, but not necessarily anybody else, like Degusa or anybody, was because mm-hmm. this is just, it gets so dark with every step, but Degesh was manufacturing circulation chambers to accompany the bulk sale of Zyklon B canisters. But at, at this point, at this point, there's still plausible deniability because it was being used in soldier barracks. You would pile all of the clothes into this barrack and then it would safely circulate through and then push the gas out and now everything's fumigated. So they sold these big chambers, hoods, whatever, to fumigate the clothes and the bedspreads. And the the chambers sold really So that well. they could do it so that they could do more at a time. Yes. And do and... it safely. Okay. Yeah. So that's part of why. But I already, but I already I, know where. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. <sighs> because what's a Nazi gonna do when they gotta do their Nazi in business? Yeah. 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 So in 1939, the Nazis up to the ante. Reinhard Heydrich and Hermann Göring drafted a letter on July 3rd to the Einsatzgruppen of the SS, which read, "Quote." Supplementing the task that was assigned to you on 24 January 1939, which dealt with the solution of the Jewish problem by emigration and evacuation in the most suitable way, I hereby charge you to submit a blueprint of the organizational subject-related and material preparatory measures for the execution of the intended final solution of the Jewish question. Here we go. Mm. Yeah. Now we're getting dark, dark. Dark, 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 dark. Last chance to turn around. (laughs) I know, I know. It's okay (laughs) if you pause here because it's too much because it just gets worse and we all know that. But within months, huge numbers of Jewish people were being rounded up and deported from eastern territories via train. In October of 1941, 20,000 Jewish people were brought by train to Lodz, Poland and normally for what was going on at the time they would have been shot as soon as they stepped off the train but because Goering and Heydrich had upped the ante they had too many people this time around Mm. so an SS officer ordered that the prisoners be loaded into trucks to Kelmno Poland and then transferred to sealed vans where they would be suffocated to death with exhaust fumes by the hundreds And this single instance became the pivot point for the genocide. And within the next two years, 360 
thousand people would be murdered in this way in Kelmno alone. Jesus. With, yeah, and within the Reich, gas tanks of carbon monoxide were obtained from IG Farben. Oh. But in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, these were too expensive, and so diesel engines were used instead. Well, God forbid, forbid that genocide be costly. <sighs> All right, I need to take, I just need to take a mental break and talk about literally anything else for like half a second. The concentration camp at Auschwitz, Poland was established in 1940, and IG Farben was directly involved in its creation because one of the original purposes for Auschwitz being built was as a plastics and artificial rubber plant for IG Farben to support the war effort using prison labor. So brought to you by IG Farben for IG Farben. Yes. Got it. In fact, the plant at Auschwitz, which was officially called Bunawerke, was nicknamed IG Auschwitz. Oh, nice. Mm. Yeah. Now, for a plant of this size to run properly, the inmate population originally anticipated for the camp had to be increased from 10,000 to 30,000 making it the largest concentration camp during the Holocaust. And it was controlled primarily by two IG Farben representatives, Otto Ambrose and Heinrich uh, Butefische. IG Farben paid the SS three Reichsmarks per day for unskilled workers, four Reichsmarks per day for skilled workers, and a Reichsmark and a half per day for children working at the mm. camp. So, of course, the people... The, the prisoners mm -hmm. were not paid, but for, like, like heads of cattle, essentially, IG Farben right. paid the SS. In addition to the workers at Auschwitz, IG also paid for 11,000 workers from a concentration camp in Monowitz to mine coal for them. And, like I said, they were not only paid for like heads of cattle and given they were given less than the animals would be their clothes yeah. weren't taken care of they weren't give, given a sufficient diet to match the labor they were being demanded to provide and they weren't allowed to bathe regularly because soap was considered a luxury and i mean most of us know this but at night they had to sleep head to toe with two or three people in a single bed of a bunk and the bunk was just wood covered in straw with a thin blanket. And this is what yeah, IG Farben Calling was it a bed. For. Yeah. Yeah. Calling it a bed was is being generous. So, fumigation chambers. Mm. Technicians installed a fumigation chamber for the SS guards' linens at Auschwitz between July 5th through the 11th, 1940. That same year, a chamber was also installed at the Sachsenhausen in concentration camp. By the end of 1942, the SS had ordered another 23 chambers, and Auschwitz mm. alone had ordered another 19. Although, those ones weren't delivered for whatever reason. Supply lines, whatever. 23 still seems like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Tesh and Stabenow were also paid for the training that went along with these delousing chambers, chambers being installed, and they were more than happy to install 23 of them in the same camp because they get paid for the training. Yeah, but it's it'd be hard to believe in the naivety of these people to think, like, we need 23 delousing chambers. <sighs> like, 
I, I, mm. Pe- people had to have seen where it was going, and they just didn't. Yeah, care. they had, they had to have known. Yeah. So the SS convinced the agriculture and interior ministers to waive the oversight and restrictions usually placed on suppliers of prussic acid for their SS officers in April of 1941. So usually prussic acid had to be handled a certain way and with certain oversight, and they did. They they waived that for SS officers. And at that point, Tesh was no longer conducting fumigations, but was still responsible for selling Zyklon B to the Black Corps and educating the prisoners on how to operate the circulation chambers. Oh, my God. Now, Tesh and his co-executive, Carl Weinbacher, hold the distinction of becoming the only businessmen to be executed for their role in Nazi atrocities in Western Europe. They didn't simply cooperate with the Nazis here. They had economic reasons for looking the other way because the SS were significantly boosting their purchases of Zyklon B after they received the waiver on oversights. Mm. Tesh sold the SS at Auschwitz and Majdanek at least 29.4 metric tons of Zyklon B from 1942 to 1944. And another 14.8 to roughly 15.2 tons was sold to other concentration camps. That's, and there's not enough delousing to be done. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. It, the, like, the plausible deniability is... Yeah, it's out it's, the window yeah. at this point. Yeah. It's out the window. Like, you know, you have to know. Yeah. So the first test of Zyklon B on prisoners at Auschwitz occurred in August 1941. And the first mass killings followed a month later on September 5th, when 600 Soviet prisoners of war and 250 other sick prisoners were gassed in basement cells of the punishment block. After this first mass murder with Zyklon B, the poisonings were continued but moved directly to the camp crematorium, which was made into a gas chamber by sealing the doors and creating openings in the ceiling so that the pellets could be poured into the chamber from above. Now, the, were the pellets what the Zyklon B was? It's the fossilized algae, yeah. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. It, and when I say it was poured in from above, it was poured into a cone that was just above. So you could you could close the chamber, but it would be held, and then you could take it out when mm. you, yeah, yeah. We're done. When you were done, yeah. Tesh, Tesh and his subordinates did not design, build, or operate the gas chambers disguised as showers in Auschwitz-Birkenau, but they knew about them by the end of 1942. And we know this because Tesh actually dictated a note after a trip to Berlin in June of that year that explicitly stated he knew that was the purpose of Zyklon B at that point. It was So he's not even hiding it at this fact, like at this point. This is part of the reason that he was executed, because this note was seen by two other employees who became whistleblowers on the company when they reported this information to the British occupying Hamburg in 1945. And the note described how the SS asked if Zyklon B could possibly be used to kill Jewish people, and Tesh said it could be used in exactly the same way it's used on insects. And then he showed them how to do it. Jesus fucking Christ. Like, what? Uh... Yeah. Now, the actual note was destroyed 
before Tesh went on trial because oh okay sure they were destroying documents, but there was no evidence to disprove the witnesses who had seen it either. So you had multiple people corroborating what this note said, mm-hmm. and one secretary even wondered aloud at Tess's company, Testa, if. The Zyklon B being ordered could really be for fumigation because she was like, oh, this is this is a lot of Zyklon B. This is a lot. And another man who was probably also a Nazi told her, quote, if you repeat such remarks, I must report you to the authorities. By 1943, Degusa had begun gradually moving towards chemicals that were also known to be used for murder. Degusa was already familiar. They're just murder incorporated at this point. Yeah, basically. Like... And they were already familiar with a lot of their chemicals as part of their regular functions, you know, liquid metals, cyanide. But they had also recently bought into carbonization as a way to compete with IG Farben. So now mm. it's like murder is – it is what they're selling. It is what they're competing yeah. against. It's, it's a branch of their company. And when I was thinking about how to structure this cyanide series that we're having this season – this is what I wanted to examine when I started researching. I already knew that the Zy- that the Nazis used Zyklon B. They used it to kill about 1.1 million people. But I wanted to know why Zyklon B was used. Why cyanide, you know? And I figured the answer had something to do with convenience, money. But this is the reason. It was a handful of companies that had the means and were eager to please and participate in war crimes, you know? It wasn't just Tesh that was selling tons and tons of Zyklon B. There were contracts drawn up and monopolies discussed and other companies who were in on selling Zyklon B. For instance, the company Heli sent 2.2 tons to Mauthausen from 1942 to 1943. Kolin sent 400 kilograms to Terensteinstadt in 1944. And they sent another 44 tons to a single person at Mauthausen. Nobody needs 44 tons or two tons of no. Zyklon B. Nobody needs that much. And there's just, there's too many people to name. There's too many companies in particular to defer to different individuals. Documentation was destroyed. But there, there are names worth mentioning. I don't like mentioning the, the names of the perpetrators because there's six million names that are lost forever. Mm-hmm. But some of them are worth mentioning just so we know how this played out later. So one of them was Dr. Gerhard Peters, who became a Degesh business manager in 1939 and then went on to lead Heli temporarily in 1941. In 1942, he was the head of the Working Committee for Disinfestation and Epidemic Control in the Armaments Ministry. So if there was somebody who could easily be identified as having deeply vested interest in Zyklon B, it was him. In 1943, Peters met an SS officer who was part of the anti-epidemic staff and was already deeply involved in the brutal details of the genocide. The year before meeting Peters, the officer who was named Kurt Gerstein witnessed a massacre of Jewish people at the time that was being covered up as an attempt to control typhus. So that's where the anti-epidemic part comes in. Mm. But at the time, it was being carried out with carbon monoxide. And Oh, yeah, that'll definitely get rid of typhus. typhus. Yeah. Yeah, for and sure. And I mean, you know, we discussed carbon monoxide in season one. It can take quite a long time to be fatal. 
And Gerstein, he saw this. He was allegedly horrified. He took it upon himself to find a faster, more reliable means of execution. And that's how he came to be introduced to Peters. Well, how wide of him? Yeah. In this meeting, Gerstein stressed the national importance for carrying out Himmler's orders. And that led to Gerstein and Peters coming to an agreement that Peters would supply Gerstein with Zyklon B without the warning agent. He said, Gerstein said, that he wanted the deaths caused by the gas to be more humane. And I read one account that said he was he was devastated by watching the gassing deaths and he was trying to use his position as an SS officer to make the situation better however he could, right? But, like, Zyklon B was not better than carbon monoxide. Like, sometimes the last people to succumb to Zyklon B would be writhing in pain for 30 minutes. Some witnesses from the first use of Zyklon B in that basement at Auschwitz, they claimed that there were people who survived the first dose of poisoning for two days. Two days. And they were given a second dose to kill them later because, you know, the Nazis didn't know how much Zyklon B was needed to kill humans because it had only been used as a pesticide. So these were their human trials. This is unnerving. And honestly, like, they were probably like, please shoot me at this point. Like, they were like, probably, yeah. Like, we're begging to be shot instead of dealing with this. Jesus. So the fucked up thing about. (sighs) The meeting between Gerstein and Peters and the 400 cans of Zyklon per month that were sent to Gerstein without the warning agent is that Peters was eventually completely acquitted of any involvement in this situation. The The use of gas for execution or euthanasia was illegal at the time. And so it was something that both Gerstein and Peters could be charged with or at least conspiracy of. But Peters claimed that he thought it was really you know, what Himmler and Hitler wanted, and Gerstein was just trying to fulfill the duties handed mm. down, you know, the whole Nuremberg Shit defense. Shit downhill. Oh, yeah. I was just doing my job. I was just going along with it. As it turns out, Gerstein, you know, according to that same thing that I read where, you know, Gerstein was horrified and he wanted to try to make it better, he is apparently equally horrified by watching Zyklon B because, as I said, it's not any better. And so he, like, he tried to destroy the Zyklon B that he had acquired, and then eventually he spilt the information he knew to a Swedish diplomat, but the damage had been done. This Zyklon B without the warning agent was being sent out. So they were using it with the warning agent before then, though? Yeah, yeah. And so (sighs) as it came... So it's even more painful. Yeah, because of the eye irritation and because you know what's happening if you've smelt it or you know, been around it before, felt it before, you know what's happening. I I can't see it as really, like, this Gerstein guy was eventually, like, his his family weighed in, and they were like, he was trying to help, and I guess his reputation has been, like, kind of saved, and he's kind of viewed as a hero of the war now. And, like, we'll Mm. talk about him later at the end of the episode, and we'll say where he ended up. But, like, it it really just felt to me when I was reading it that, like, it was easier to get the next batch of people in because they didn't have to wait for the warning agent to dissipate. Once the mm. warm air filtered it out of the room and the Nazis could go oh. in and remove the bodies, they could just send in. So it was more for the the facilitators than that's the That's prisoners. how I read it. Yeah. That it made it a that's lot. That's fucked up. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So. Uh... And there were there were IG foremen on the premises as well. So let's not forget that it's not just the SS and you know prisoners being forced to do it, but the IG foremen were on the premises of the concentration camp, and they were there while the executions were being conducted. They themselves would beat prisoners for pausing in their work until they resumed or died. And sometimes they even surpassed the SS officers in their brutality. You know, prisoners were pressed to work for long hours with no energy and would sometimes just drop dead in the line of working, trying to keep up the pace for IG Farben. They, so they're they're murder juniorink, but they're taking... Yeah. Because was... Did Degesh have people on site like this other than the setup? Nope. I nope. just IG Farben. Just IG Farben. Yeah. Okay. And it's not like IG Farben was even trying to cover up their behavior because by mid 1943, most of the people who worked for the company were aware of the company's involvement with the concentration camps, and 2,500 of them actually worked or lived on the Bunavirka campus. So, fucking Auschwitz, right? Yeah. And were aware of the stench and the smoke that constantly emanated from the prison camp side. On Wehrmacht Day in March of that year, 1943, several civilian employees of IG Farben were invited inside the gates by officers to visit the camp for dinner and holiday entertainment. This is so terrible. I know. One British prisoner of war, Charles Coward, was quoted as saying, of course, all the Farben people knew what was going on. Nobody could live at Auschwitz and work in the plant or even come down to the plant without knowing what was common knowledge to everybody. All of the top executives at IG Farben must have known what was going on as well, even if it was never communicated in writing, because again, that documentation was gone. But all of them, all of these top execs at IG Farben visited the camp at least once between 1942 and 1944. So they had to know even, mm -hmm. but I would, I would venture to say that even if they hadn't visited the camps, they had to know what was going on because right. they weren't selling 44 metric tons of Zyklon B prior to the war. They weren't yeah. selling chambers out the asshole. Like they, they were all complicit in this. Well, Whether and like they, I said earlier, like, they weren't selling 44 metric tons of a sulfur based pesticide. Right. Yeah. They, they, there's, there's no way mm -mm. to say that they didn't know. Every single one of them's complicit. Yeah. And I mean, bare drugs were even used being experimentally on prisoners by the angel of death himself, Josef Mengele. He was paid by the company, supposedly in the name of R&D, to do tests. And so all of the atrocities mm. that are associated with him those were funded by IG Farben and reported back to them as human experiments. Wow. IG Farben pulled its employees out of Auschwitz in January of 1945 as the Russian army drew near, and they attempted to destroy the evidence of their deeds by burning as much as they could, which is why we lack some of this documentation. The executives of the company had already been drafting their alibis and excuses the year before when it became clear how things were going to look for them when the war was finally over. 
Well, yeah, they were probably quaking in their boots. Cause like, yeah, so we just participated in mass genocide. Yeah. The war's going to be over at some point. What are we going to say about that? Yeah, because it doesn't look like we're going to be the victors. Yeah. So in August of 1945, the Potsdam Conference divided Germany into four zones and sought to denazify and decartelize the industries which had assisted in the war effort so they could never amass such power again. It's basically what they did after World War One, but now they're like, Jesus mm. Christ, what the fuck is your problem? We need to separate you. Yeah, so, go play in the corner. Yeah, yeah. So the next month, General Eisenhower ordered that all IG plants which had operated for war-making purposes be destroyed and their facilities be divided for reparation, which essentially ended IG Farben. However, the plants were mostly absorbed by the Soviet Union, which made it difficult for the United States to assess what should be done. Who was the greater enemy, the communists of the Soviet Union or the Nazis who already had assets which could be useful in the mm. fight against communism in Europe? 24 IG Farben executives were indicted on behalf of the United States in May of 1947 for five separate counts, including planning, preparation, and waging of war on other countries, plunder and spoliation, slavery and mass murder, membership in criminal organizations, and crimes against peace. Nine were found guilty of spoilation and murder. Five were found guilty of slavery and mass murder, including Ambrose and Budafish. In total, 13 were charged, and none were sentenced to more than eight years in prison, while the other 11 were completely set free. That is so dissatisfying. I know. More people were killed, like, m millions more people were killed than each year spent in prison. Yeah, yeah. Once he was released, Otto Ambrose, who planned and ran IG Auschwitz, created a secret chemical weapons program for the war effort and received a Knight's Cross from Adolf Hitler himself. He served on the board of Chemie Grunenthal, the maker of thalidomide. Oh. Yeah, yeah, go listen to that episode if you haven't heard it. That's a fun tale, too. Yeah, maybe take a day in between. Like, mental health is important. Yeah, yeah that's, yeah, probably a good idea. <gasps> but, yeah. Yeah, good good playmates up there at Kemi Grunenthal. Mm. All of the charges brought against the managing board and the administrative committee at Degusa were also dropped, either because they really didn't know what was happening or there's a, there was enough plausible deniability to, to suggest that they really just thought the Zyklon B being sold to different concentration camps was actually being used for intense pesticide control. Give However, me a fucking break. <laughs> fucking no, right? However... It is noteworthy that Degusa's lawyers were employed in defending Gerhard Peters in his trials between 1948 and 1945 that resulted in his acquittal. So he gets off scot-free, too? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Okay. The dissolution of IG Farben was postponed until 1949. But in 1951, the companies Bayer, Hirscht, and BASF were reopened, along with six smaller companies that included Agfa, Kale, Casella, and Hules. By the 1970s, the three largest had exceeded their 1936 levels and absorbed the six smaller companies and were now among the 30 largest corporations worldwide. Bayer nice. is still the largest producer of aspirin and among the top 10 largest pharmaceutical companies. And BASF Group is the world's largest group of chemical companies. Okay. 
Well, they're doing well. I love to see it. Not. <laughs> Zyklon itself continued to be sold in Germany through 1974. It was renamed Cyanosil and then continued to be sold until 1986 when Degesh was sold to another company and renamed Deshia Degesh GmbH. Okay, so we have a little bit of a branding change because mm -hmm. things for the Zyklon name weren't mm -hmm. so market friendly. Yeah. Bruno Tesch and his co-executive, Carl Weinbacher, were found guilty of violating the Hague Convention of 1907, essentially a chemical warfare convention, and hanged on May 16, 1946. So Gerhard Peters, I mentioned earlier that he was acquitted with help from Degesh's, mm -hmm. uh, with from help with Degusso's legal team, actually, yeah. yeah. He was originally sentenced to five years in prison for accessory to manslaughter and three years for loss of honor. But then he was acquitted. Kurt Gerstein. Yeah, as a, but even if even if he served all eight years, as if it's enough. As if, right? Kurt Gerstein, the SS officers who got Peters to sell him Zyklon B without the warning agent, was captured by the French after the war, charged with war crimes, and died in prison, possibly by his own hand. And as I said earlier, eventually his family worked hard and, you know, fixed his reputation as a hero to try to sabotage the war from within. I'm just, oh, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that narrative, you know? Yeah, I mean, all he did, like, let's say they weren't, they didn't get one of the warning agents who increased the, uh, the amount of people who could go in and out of the chambers. Let's say he really did do it for good, like... Was that really hero shit? Right. Yeah. Like, you're still letting millions of people be murdered. Like, that's not really hero shit. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. And one of the most complicated and controversial characters in this story, Fritz Haber, the Jewish chemist who helped invent Cyclone B and a number of other chemical weapons, died in Switzerland as an exile from Germany in 1934. Karl Bosch drank himself to death in 1939 after being removed from all positions of power for speaking out against Hitler and the Nazi party. I think you're right about Haber, though. Like, maybe it was for the best that he died before all of this happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, because even though he was the chemist of the wars, like, that would be a lot to, to swallow, knowing mm -hmm. what happened with your creation after the pact. So, long story, complicated story, tragic story, but, you know, the, the Nazis, they didn't do it alone. It wasn't just Hitler who forced his way into the power that he got. There were people who believed the lies and they wanted a scapegoat for the problems in their lives. They wanted the same scapegoat that's always been used and they were willing to accept whatever they were told. So they were willing to accept some bullshit that's as old as time. And I, I think that that's part of the difference between the Nazis, who we have no sympathy for whatsoever, and someone like Juliana Tofana, who also had pretty high body count, not six million people, but pretty high. You and Definitely. I were pretty light in the Aqua Tofana episode, but it was because like, it was people who literally were disempowered, whereas the Nazis were just selling this, like, the story of being disempowered. Mm -hmm. But the people who they were targeting were already people who had a position of less 
power in their community. You know, Jewish people, Romani people, disabled people, gay and queer individuals. And, you know, they perceived them as having more power than them. But it's just that they didn't like them. And Yeah, that's all it was. Yeah, so... There's no bones about them. I don't know. Like, I think chemistry is interesting. I think chemistry is cool. I think poisons and their effect on the body, it's fascinating to me. But it also has a haunting yeah yeah value to it yeah like like anything it can be used for good it can be used for evil it can be used to perpetuate systemic disparities so if you guys made it to the end of this episode good job this was a rough episode to research it was a rough episode to record but i really wanted to tell the story i really wanted to know why this happened how did chemistry play a part such a big part in fairly recent history like this yeah because we're not we're still not a century past Mm -mm. no and this is just the beginning of the story of cyanide this is the early part of the story of cyanide so i don't think that the rest of this month is going to be as heavy as this but it's going to be it's going to be a doozy The Cyanide series is going to be kind of a rough one to listen to, so. Well, we hope to see you all around for part two, where Mm -hmm. we go to Jonestown. Jonestown, yeah, we're doing a lot of cults this season, so. Buckle up. Buckle the fuck up. (laughs) And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves. Go stand in the sunshine now. And touch some grass. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison. <laughs>